and the events that purchased our redemption and have given us life. We pray, Lord, that you would once again pour out your spirit upon us. That you would draw our eye and fix it upon you. That you would, this final time, use the words of your servant Paul to urge us on in the journey of transformation. Lord, open my lips that my mouth would proclaim your praise. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. Never, never, never give up. It's one of the most oft-quoted and memorable quotations of that great British wartime prime minister, Winston Churchill. But it's also a great example of something that someone famous almost said once. Because it's actually doubtful if Churchill ever actually said, never, never, never give up. It's probably that somebody somewhere along the line paraphrased what Churchill did, in fact, say. Because in a speech in 1941 to the graduating class of Harrow School, he said this, Never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Never Give in, except to convictions. Never yield. Good words to young men in the throes of wartime Europe. But Churchill could have equally been preaching on the final chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. As we finish up our Lenten series and come into this fourth chapter. Never give up, never give in, never yield. This is the message St. Paul wishes to drive home and leave this church in Philippi with. He draws together several themes that he's woven throughout the first three chapters. But all of them keep driving toward this central point. Never give up. St. Paul begins his final lap with these words. 4 verse 1. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. First off, see the heartfelt passion that this father in the Lord is communicating with and communicating to his church. His joy, his crown, the ones he loves and longs for. This is no dispassionate to-do list that he's leaving them with at the end. You know, oh yeah, by the way, do these things, okay? But note also how this sentence works as a transition to connect back to all that precedes it. Therefore, it's as if he's saying everything that I've just talked about, all, everything from putting the gospel first in your relationships, in your prayers, in the life of the church, putting the, uh, the, the cross at the center, looking to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the example of godly leaders. Because of all of that, stand firm Thus, 
But he also points forward to everything that he will unpack over this final chapter. He says, stand firm thus, in this way. Actually, in these six ways. Because over chapter 4, he is going to unpack six ways that he is expecting the church and calling on the church to stand firm in the faith of the gospel. Six character traits, six virtues, if you will, will, to never give up on. And that's an important point. These are not six laws to be followed or six doctrines to be memorized, but six habits of the heart to be held onto and lived in at all costs. So first, Paul says, never give up on Christian community. Never give up on Christian community. He starts this impassioned and heartfelt entreaty to two women in the midst of the church in Philippi. Now, I can't imagine what an honor it would be to be among those few who are named in the Holy Scriptures. Can you imagine? But if my name was Euodia or Sintiki, I don't think that I would want that honor in this particular case. Do you want to be remembered for the rest of history as the two ladies that couldn't get along? St. Paul writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And yes, I ask you also, true companion, probably the person who is receiving the letter and reading it to the church there, probably an elder, a priest, a presbyter, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, we don't know the nature of the disagreement between these two women. But clearly, it is not what we might call doctrinal. Paul names them as women who have been fellow laborers with him in the gospel. They've got the gospel down. It's not that kind of an issue. Likewise, it's clearly not a moral issue. There's no black and white here that Paul's saying, you know, help Yudia convince Sintiki that she's wrong, right? There's none of that. But notice how Paul instructs on how this impasse that these two women are at can be overcome. He doesn't say, figure out who's right and who's wrong, likely because this is one of those differences of opinion where there is no This is right, this is wrong. Who cares the color of the carpet in the narthex, right? Why are you fighting over whose house should host a small group next week, right? The problem itself doesn't even get named, doesn't even come up. Rather, what he does is he reminds these women that they have far more that unites them than whatever this is that's dividing them. There's far more that unites them than that which divides You can disagree about methods and means, but agree in the Lord. Last week, if you were here, you might have had the opportunity to meet our friends Darren and Amy, who were passing through, have just moved to to pastor up in Casper, Wyoming. They spent the weekend with us, and in advance of Sunday morning, Darren and I got to talking about Philippians, and specifically talking about that great hymn that we've talked about a couple weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2. You know, about the Lord Jesus Christ who laid aside, you know, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but laid it aside and became a servant. And Darren just kind of offhandedly made this comment to me. He said, if more Christians 
embraced that mindset with one another and engaged in that kind of humility, there would be significantly fewer disagreements within the church. And he is right on. That is essentially what Paul's saying. Follow Christ and lay aside your rights and prerogatives and put your sister first. Euodia, set it aside, put Sintiki first. Sintiki, put it aside and put Euodia first. Follow Christ and lay aside your rights and prerogatives. That's what it means to agree in the Lord. Remember that there's more that unites you than which divides you. And exercise this kind of radical humility with one another. But the other point here that I want to make is don't give up on the fellowship of faith just because there are disagreements from time to time. I've seen too many people get somehow disillusioned because they think, oh, this is the church. We shouldn't disagree, right? Apostolic church planted by St. Paul himself. And there's this kind of impasse that gets recorded forever in history. I don't think a church planted by somebody like me is going to expect to do much better. Don't give up. It's never a reason to give up and stop wrestling with one another. Rather, stay engaged and keep struggling to put the gospel in the center of relationships. When you're wronged, forgive. When you're at an impasse, focus on the Lord and on your oneness. But don't give up on Christian community. Second, Paul says, please, please, please never give up on joy. Never give up on joy. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The language of joy has permeated Paul's letter. In chapter 1, he was rejoicing as he was praying to the Lord in thanksgiving for the church in Philippi. He asks them, the church in Philippi, to rejoice with him. In chapter 2, even, he says, if he's supposed to be poured out as a drink offering, even if he's going to be a martyr to the faith, for the faith, rejoice with him. The command to rejoice in the Lord first came up in chapter 3. Clearly, as Paul is writing to these believers in the midst of troubles within and persecutions without, as they hear of their beloved apostles' imprisonment, it is high on St. Paul's priority list that even in the midst of all that, they not lose their joy. But this is not a call to some sort of Pollyanna view of, you know, too blessed to be stressed, nor an Eastern or, or Stoic call to, you know, just sort of that willed impassibility over hardship or a, a rejection of suffering as illusion. The key, once again, is in the direct object of the command. Rejoice in the Lord. This is sage wisdom that is universally called for and universally possible apart from circumstances. Even when the world is crashing down around me, even when I have the kind of week where we have multiple appliance and car failures and I self-inflict a wound in my own thumb, the stress of looming Holy Week preparations and just the you know, garden variety fires that I get to put out each and every day, none of that changes the facts 
that the God who created me loves me enough that he became a human being to take on the consequences of my own rebellion and defeat my greatest enemy, death. And as if that weren't enough, he's also given me himself in his presence by his Holy Spirit to be with me in the midst of whatever my circumstances might happen to be, to lead me and to guide me through them, to shower me with his love and his peace, to work his resurrection power within me. No wonder when a bunch of believers come together, we call our worship a celebration of the Holy Eucharist, a celebration of holy thanksgiving. Because celebration and thanks are central to the Christian journey. This is why even here in Lent, when we begin by recounting the Big Ten and the New Testament sort of fulfillment of those, even when we have that opportunity to have those oh shoot moments, right? When we go, okay, yeah, I haven't killed anybody this week. Oh, but Jesus said, even if you, you know, think with anger upon that brother or sister, you may as well have killed them. Oh, oh no, right? Even in the midst of that, we hear the gracious words of absolution and pardon, and then we stand up and we sing for joy. That is instructive. We do it here because that is the pattern that we are to do out there. Rejoice in the Lord at all times. Never give up your joy. Third, never give up gentleness. Never give up gentleness. St. Paul goes on in verse 5. The ESV puts it this way. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. But that word, epiekes, in the Greek, it means a lot more than reasonableness. To me, reasonableness is sort of a non-word as far as adjectives go. Reasonableness feels like, you know, well, just be reasonable. Think it through, right? But this word, epiakes, it's a gem. It is used in, in several different ways throughout the New Testament to mean everything from propriety, which maybe is what drove this choice of reasonableness, to gentleness, forbearance, courteousness, moderation, or patience. Gentleness, forbearance, courteousness, moderation. Patience. But however you want to render it in English, the thought Paul is conveying is this habit of heart, it stands as a complete contrast to a spirit of contention or self-seeking or self-promotion or self-service. What Paul is saying is, don't be known for your boorishness, your self-satisfied rightness, your ability to look down your nose at another. But D.A. Carson is quick to point out, this gentleness, this gentleness, though, must not be confused with being a wimp, with the kind of person, he says, whose personality is akin to a wet dishcloth. What is in view is a certain kind of willed, self-effacing kindness. A willed, self-effacing kindness. Kindness. In other words, 
choose to embody the gentleness we see in Jesus. Jesus was no wimp. Jesus was no wet dishcloth. He was the all-powerful God of the universe choosing to confine himself to the body of a human being to be flogged and killed in order not to be served, but to serve. Do that. Choose that. In fact, be known for that, is what St. Paul is saying. And why? Because the Lord is at hand. Now, this could be a call to action because Jesus is returning, and like the ten virgins in his parable, we don't want to be caught unawares. But more likely, St. Paul means to remind us that in the church, wherever two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name, Jesus has promised to be in our midst to be with us, present. How would you act or talk or even think if you were mindful of the fact that Jesus is standing between you and your brother or sister? Now we've found some motivation and even a means for keeping ourselves in check. Jesus is here with us. So don't give up on being gentle, kind, courteous, forbearing, moderate, and patient. Indeed, Paul models his own final words of this passage. If you skip down to verse 14 and all the way through to the end of the passage, I'm not going to read it to us right now, but go through it and note the courteousness, the gentleness that St. Paul displays thinking not of his own circumstances, but choosing rather to set that aside and celebrate the Philippians for what they have done for him. Taking the time to share heartfelt greetings, celebrating relationship and life in Christ Jesus. St. Paul is embodying the very virtue that he is commending here. Never give up gentleness. In fact, be known for it. Fourth, never give up hope. Paul writes in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Some friends here at the church have a joke that they say to one another from time to time, and now they've included me and start saying it to me from time to time, which is, Why pray when you can worry, right? Why pray when you can worry? It's humorous because it just sort of puts its finger on the pulse of human nature, doesn't it? It seems like oftentimes that is our, you know, sort of unconscious automatic response to the circumstances of life, especially if you are a more introverted, calculating thinker like me. Because when I encounter a problem, my mind immediately goes to work on solving it, right? But then as I'm starting to work my way through the solution, I start to think about all of the what-ifs. And then that becomes entirely overwhelming, and that can become a worrisome exercise. But of course, why worry when you can pray is actually what Paul is saying to us here. But Paul's words to not worry It's more than just that sort of like empathy devoid. Oh, don't worry about it. You're making it more than what it is. There is no empathy in that statement, friends. It's not that kind of advice giving that too many of us have received. And if we 
you know, are honest, we may sheepishly have to admit we have also given. Oh, just don't worry about it, right? Again, like all of these habits of the heart we've been looking at, Paul roots these words in the objective, ultimate, real. You can be free from worry because even though you can't see all of the outcomes and the variables, you serve a God who can and does. Again, that all-surpassing resurrection power, the power of a God that took a dead man out of a cave after three days and made him alive again. The power that caused the very existence of all that is, seen and unseen. The power that can be relied upon and accessed through prayer. Now, as I said to the group gathered two weeks ago for our midweek soup and prayer, we don't believe that there is power in prayer. We believe that when we pray, we are speaking to a God who is all-powerful who is power itself. And what is more, God makes us this solemn promise through these words of his servant Paul. You give him your worry, he gives you his peace. You give him your worry, he'll give you his peace. God's own peace. Think about that for a second. This is why Paul says it surpasses human understanding. Can you imagine the immeasurable peace that comes with knowing that you are perfect, infinite, and all-powerful? I mean, so much human behavior is driven by fear. Fear of being insignificant. Fear that someone stronger is going to come along and take what you have. Fear that there's not going to be enough. Now, just imagine, never, ever, having to feel that because you are the most significant being in the multiverse and beyond. There is none stronger than you that's going to come along and take it, and there is no ever lack. You are infinite. I'd imagine I can't imagine the level of peace that God knows. And he promises through this word of Paul's to share that peace With us. How? By keeping our hearts and minds rooted in his presence. By keeping our hearts and minds rooted in his presence. Christ Jesus present with us and within us by his Holy Spirit. When we have him, what else do we need? That's what the psalmist essentially says. When we know that we can never lose him, even if we lose our very lives, what have we to fear? Not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. So what short of death can you possibly think of to fear, to worry about? St. Paul's call to prayer here is not some mandate to practice more discipline. Just pray. Nor that patronizing pat on the head. Oh, don't worry. It is a rooting in the deep mystery of the universe that Jesus came to give himself For you. And if you have him, literally nothing else ultimately matters. But how hard it is to maintain that hope. How hard it is to remember that hope in the midst of difficulty. 
Anxiety is rife in our society. And anxiety is a symptom of losing sight of hope. Despair is the loss of hope altogether. And the solution is not mind games. And I'm not talking about the kind of, you know, clinical anxiety disorders that require medication and counseling. I'm just talking about garden variety anxiety, okay? The solution is not mind games. No volume of post-it notes with, you know, encouraging statements, pep talks, or quelling of negative self-talk is sufficient to overcome anxiety and despair. Only the living presence of the living God with us and within us can do that. And he can do that. Never lose Fifth, never lose sight of your holiness. That word, holiness, simply means to be set apart. To be set apart. You could even think of it as being different. So when we speak of a believer's holiness, we are simply referring to the fact that she is set apart for God. But maintaining that set-apartness is more than a full-time job, isn't it? I mean, what fish is aware that the oxygenated environment in which he lives is the very thing that keeps him alive, right? Fish do not swim through the water thinking, I need this water to pass through my gills, and by osmosis, the oxygen will pass into my bloodstream. No, they're just fish. They just live in the water. And it's all they've ever known, and it's all they ever will know unless they are caught and eaten, right? It's a really good picture of how deeply you and I are influenced by the shared human experience that forms the very atmosphere that we move through. In the midst of that cultural submersion, hear this urging of the apostle with love and longing. Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Again, do you see it? It's all about God in Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, the author to the Hebrews will say. What greater good, what greater loveliness, truth, honor, justice, purity, excellence, praiseworthiness is there? It's God who is the generator and perfect embodiment of those virtues. Everything that is good or lovely, true or just in this world is a reflection of the God who made it. It is distinct from God. Biblical Christian faith is not pantheism or panentheism. Those things of beauty are not God. They are not a part of God. But they do reflect him. Do you see once again how Paul's urging is to keep our hearts and our minds fixed upon the Lord Jesus and our Heavenly Father by the power of His Holy Spirit. It is by participation in the divine life, what St. Peter will call being partakers of the divine nature. That is how we maintain our holiness. 
Again, holiness is not established by avoiding drink, smoke, and chew, and all the girls that do. Righteousness does not come to us through the law. Do this, don't do that, and you'll be fine. St. Paul will say in his letter to the Romans, that can only actually bring you to death. Holiness comes through the grace of God, bringing the very life of God into the hearts of the people of God. Our only work then is to participate with the Spirit of God and engage the spirit of discipline that he's given to us to avoid all the manifold distractions. That's the don'ts. It's to avoid all the manifold distractions of the tainted parts of this glorious creation that want to pull our eye off the Creator. You know, the usual money, sex, power, reputation, and all the perversions of God's good creation. Lay hold of the presence of God, and holiness follows after. Never give up your holiness people of God. And so sixth and finally we hear Paul's last injunction, never give up contentment in the Lord. Never give up contentment in the Lord. St. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Exercising that that courteous, gentle gratitude we've already talked about, Paul once again thanks the Philippians for the gift they sent to him via his servant or their, their servant Epaphroditus that we talked about last week, showing their renewed and ongoing concern for the, the apostles' physical well-being. And as he's thanking them, it's almost as if he anticipates that in their generosity, they're going to read this as some sort of like veiled request for more help, right? He says, no, not that I need anything more from you. What you've done is amazing. It's great. Thank you. So he's quick to say, I'm not in need, but he goes on, he is not in need primarily, or rather I should say not primarily, because the Philippians or any other churches have been generous to him, but primarily because he has learned to be content completely and utterly apart from his external circumstances. Do you see how this is directly related to what the apostle has already addressed when he's talking about joy and hope? It's not tied to circumstances. So too, contentment. They are not tied to what I have or don't have. What circumstances do or do not impact me. Contentment, just like joy and hope, is tied to being with and in Christ, regardless of circumstances. If, like me, you were ever in a Christian youth group or went to a sports camp, you too probably had at least one t-shirt with Philippians 4.13 on it, right? I can do all things through him who gives me strength, right? Now, very often, especially in the cases of sports camps, we pull that verse way out of its context, right? 
and see it as saying, nothing's impossible for me. I can run faster, leap higher, you know, have endurance, be stronger. I can tell you, this may be anecdotal evidence, but I can tell you as one who bore such shirts in the past, I am not a better athlete because of Christ than the pagan neighbors, uh, you know, those big like Viking football player kids that could run faster than me and shoot better than me and all that stuff. But in the context, we see, of course, that that's not at all what St. Paul means, right? He is tying his ability to be content in all circumstances to one thing and one thing only. Christ in him, the hope of glory, the divine presence that gives him the strength to endure all things. That is the key to Christian contentment. Don't give up contentment. St. Paul's finished this letter applying the good news of Jesus, the power of his resurrection in these six tangible ways. Never give up on the Christian community. Never give up joy, gentleness, hope. Don't give up your holiness or contentment in the Lord. Hopefully by now you've seen that Paul's answer for achieving, maintaining, and holding on to all six of these virtues, these habits of the heart, is all one and the same. It's Jesus. I know it sounds like a Sunday school answer, but it's true. It's Jesus. It's all about the manifest presence of the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit, alive and thriving in the hearts and the minds and the lives of the people of God. So what does that look like for us in our everyday lives? Brother Lawrence, a simple, uneducated, medieval monk, talked about this very concept in terms of practicing the presence of God. He sought through the menial tasks of his day in a monastery kitchen to be mindful moment by moment of God's presence with him and within him. And in so doing, he became a beacon to, frankly, an otherwise darkening period of time in the history of the church. Practicing the presence of God. He began what he called his game with minutes. How long can I remember that I am standing in the presence of Almighty God? And when I lose sight of it, come back to it. How long can I do it this time? Practicing the presence can begin by setting external reminders. Set your phone or your watch that dings at you constantly about everything else in the world anyway, right? Set your phone or your watch to ding every few minutes, every quarter hour to begin with maybe. Oh, right. I started this hour thinking about that God was with me and it is quarter after and I haven't thought about it since about the first second of this hour. That's all right. Back to it. Practice what the ancients called breath prayer. Aloud or under your breath or internally in your head, recite the name of Jesus over and over as a reminder of his presence within you, with you. Those are just two ideas off the top of my head, two things that I've done over the past 20 plus years to try and practice the presence of Jesus. There are dozens of ways I'm sure I haven't even thought of but by all means, do something practical to remind yourself that in every moment of every day, the real presence of the living God of the universe is with you and within you. 
there to empower you to maintain community, joy, hope, gentleness, holiness, and contentment. In Genesis chapter 32, we read the remarkable story of the holy patriarch Jacob, who sleeps alone under the stars one night before he goes to meet his estranged brother, who last he saw him a few years ago wanted to kill him. Kind of a sleepless night. But in the midst of it, God visits him. The presence of God comes to him and wrestles with him physically. And even after the, the, the presence of God touches his hip and, and sort of disables him, a wound he'd carry for the rest of his life, Jacob still won't let go. And Jacob says to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Friends, that is an instructive picture of what St. Paul is urging us toward here. Take hold of the presence of the Lord and don't let go. Don't let go until his final blessing, well done, good, faithful servant. Don't let go. Never give up. Never, never, never give in. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, none of this was academic, impractical to your servant Paul. How easy it is for us to take it and make it that. Lord, by your spirit, you alone, your presence, the very presence I was just talking about, you alone can root this in our hearts and aid us in practically living in these ways. So, Holy Spirit, come upon your holy people. And root us in this gift of community that you have given us. Root us in joy. Root us in gentleness and hope. Root us in the holiness of being set apart for you. Lord, root us in contentment. In the midst of an uncontented age. It's all by the power of your spirit, and so it is to you that we look to do it within us. Our Lord and our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.